BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Naveed Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We've allowed leaders to reach power selling the false premise that strength comes from degrading others and dehumanizing those that look, act, or think differently than we do. In Congress, I've witnessed how division is heavily rooted. There's little to no desire to bridge our differences, and unity is no longer a word we use. It has also become increasingly obvious to me that in order to break the narrative, I cannot focus on both a re-election to Congress and a broader fight nationwide. It was just last October that Congressman Adam Kinzinger announced that he would not be seeking re-election. Kinzinger, a Republican from Illinois, as you'll hear, is a dying breed in his own party in a lot of ways. He's relatively young in the world of national politics, just 44 years old and only six terms under his belt. In large part, he says he's retiring from the House because of the state of the Republican Party. It's deeply divided and struggling to find common ground, even on something simple like agreeing on basic facts. And the other thing that sets Kinzinger apart is that he served both in Iraq and Afghanistan. In simple terms, he's seen some things. And now he's seen enough of how Congress can't come together on domestic policy or foreign policy. So he's moving on. But before the elections this November and before this chapter of Adam Kinzinger's life comes to a close, He's got a lot to say about his colleagues, about Ukraine, and about the future of American politics. Congressman, uh, so much to talk about with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, I want to start with, obviously, the the big news of the day. 
remains Ukraine. And one of the things that fascinates me about Ukraine and the war there is that there is such an inability, for, I think, for a lot of people to figure out what the facts on the ground are, right? There's, in many cases, contradictory facts. And I think that this really boils down to something that we've seen over the last four years from 2016 on, this idea that, you know, again, as a journalist, you think about this, and if it's raining, or you know, the job of a journalist is to say that it's raining, not to present both sides of whether it's raining or not. It's a fact. And, you know, I think a lot about your decision not to, to run again. And I think about this time that we are, and again, with the Russians and Ukraine specifically, with facts, but it also is something that seems to have plagued the U.S. and it's sort of a domestic question. Where are we in terms of this, I don't know what to call it, a conflict with facts, this both-sidedism that we can't in many cases even agree on just factual things, that there are many, for many Americans, those facts are are guided by politics. What what do you say to that? Yeah, it's like a truth crisis. And, uh, you know, that's what I call it. And it's, it's, you know, you say it correctly, whereas like there, there's American media has this idea that, and I mean, I think a significant amount of uh, American media, particularly on the right, has just become like, you know, not even trying to protect the fact, not even trying to pretend that they're somehow playing the middle ground. But you know, this idea that, well, we have to present both sides of an issue. And so you can take that and say, well, then we we must grant voice to those that say Vladimir Putin is correct. Well, no, because Vladimir Putin isn't correct. And there are some basic kind of fundamental ideas and principles that we should agree in as a country. But, you know, when you have the internet that's counterbalancing, you know, people that have an opinion and the internet that's that's pushing conspiracy theories and pulling people into deep rabbit holes, it's a real difficult fight. And I think ultimately it comes down to uh, really there's not much role for government in it, at least that I know of. Uh, it really comes down to people having to take personal accountability for what they believe instead of just being spoon fed rage. It's a really difficult issue. And I'll tell you, people like, you know, Vladimir Putin have have done a really good job, at least up to this point of exploiting that and, and creating real doubt. Yeah, you know, you talk about personal responsibility for for this, and, and you're right. I mean, but don't you agree that it seemed, you know, again, in like the 80s when we had Reagan, you know, every American, I mean, most Americans would agree, most politicians would agree that the Soviets were the evil empire, right? And, and you're talking about Putin, who's, a, you know, he's a derivative of the Soviet Union. And, and now we have, it is as if that that is a, you know, that is a debatable point. Uh, you know, when you have yeah. people like, you know, former President Donald Trump, Matt Gates even Tulsi Gabbard, like really kind of talking positively about Russia, even to the point of saying, you know, Ukraine should just kind of kowtow to Putin and give things away. You know, national security used to be this unifying thing, whether you're Republican, oh, Democratic. No. Why, why has that dissipated? Why have we sort of lost our way? Because, so this could be a long answer, and I'll try to boil it down to a quicker answer, which is, at some point in the last, I don't know, since probably the fall of the Soviet Union, because it used to be, you know, Republicans and Democrats, there, in, in all honesty, there used to be like four parties in this country. There were liberal Republicans, conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats. And so those four parties were able to usually kind of navigate through tough issues, get things done. There were alliances of convenience. And it was kind of a parliamentary system in a way compared to today. But the one thing that the whole country could agree on, I mean, you could hate, as a Republican, I could sit here and be like, oh, those Southern Democrats, I'm so mad at them for this. But we can all agree that the Soviet Union is bad. And I think what happened is the Soviet Union fell. 
we've lost our common enemy. 9-11 comes along, and of course that gives us a brief quote-unquote respite in terms of at least being unified against a, a common threat. And then we basically, for all intents and purposes, win that war. And now I think what happened is instead of having a common enemy, we're always looking for an enemy as humans, as a political party, as somebody that wants to be famous. You're like, how can I say the most outrageous thing? And Vladimir Putin, you know, somewhat through his trolls, just somewhat through who he is, spoon fed that to people. I remember the very first conversation I had with Dana Rohrbacher, a retired member of Congress, who was the only member of Congress to be so openly pro-Vladimir Putin. Now, the interesting thing is Dana Rohrbacher was part of the whole funding the opposition against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so it was always kind of interesting to me, how did this guy go from being a pretty anti-Soviet warrior to like the mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin? Well, then comes along Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi starts saying crazy stuff about, you know, Bashar al-Assad, and he didn't actually use chemical weapons. It was actually the opposition. I'm looking and seeing this mirroring of Putin talking points. And then it exploded because when you say something crazy, as some people have seen, you become famous. And that's where Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, to an extent, Donald Trump, who has some affection for Putin, popped in. And I think in all that process, and I'll try to keep this short, but in all that process, people were convinced that somehow Vladimir Putin is the defender of white Christianity and the way things used to be. Because, you know, he's oppresses gays, he's, you know, supposedly loves the Catholic Church, which, of course, he doesn't. And I think he he convinced people, as he's done in Hungary and other places, that somehow he is the conservative way of being. I think that's what happened. I think there's a 100 things to explore in there. But I think that's the 50,000 foot overview of how we got to this really rotten place. Well, a 100 things indeed. And, and there's a lot to touch upon there. I mean, you know. In a former world, I look at what is happening today and I feel that in many cases our counterintelligence and our ability to sort of counter Russian efforts just it's not up to it's not up to par. You know, whether you're talking about cryptocurrency and the ability to move money to fund operations and you know just having legislation that hasn't caught up to it to enforcement, you know, there's clearly a gap there. And you talk about Dana Rohrbacher and look, we know that the Russians, as we're seeing in Ukraine, they can't compete with us militarily or economically, but right. they can compete with us with propaganda. And, and look, you know, I've, I've long said this, that, you know, we talk about unwitting assets, but there's also th something called what I call sort of an unwitting cash recipient, this idea that the Russians can fund sort of online trolls and, you know, people have Patreon accounts. But here's the question I have for you for, with this is that you talk about 9-11, right? And we, you were commissioned in the Air Force shortly after 9-11. It was a different world. You said there was this brief moment of, of unity, but there was unity. This idea of we all had to contribute to the national security and defense of this country and, and, and politics aside. And I, I'm not talking about politics here, but 2016, we, we all agreed that Russia tried to interfere with our democracy. Why is that such a hard thing for Americans to get behind? Well, you can look at the same with January 6th. You know, that, that to me, and, and you know, in the opening, you kind of mentioned the idea of whataboutism. And, uh, you know, and people will say, well, what about the riots over the summer? And I agree. Look, I was activated with the guard for the riots over the summer. They were terrible. But at no point did it truly threaten democracy. Right. And that's where I don't know if it's a lack of civic education. I don't know if it's just kind of willful brainwashing, which I think is the case with some people where they you pick a tribe. And, you know, look, it's it's 
if you say something, I saw it, I was watching a focus group even the other day of Republican kind of MAGA types. And, and you would see somebody say, well, how many of you think the 2020 election was stolen? And, you know, three people on that group would not raise their hand initially until they looked around and said everybody else's hand raised. And so they'd raise theirs as well. And I think what you see is people are scared to lose their social groups. They're scared to be kind of evicted from, you know, uh, that, that identity that they have. And I think at some point with the, you know, Donald Trump was an accelerator. He comes along somehow recognizing that, uh, you know, interference in the election happened he takes so personally because everything is personal to him. Literally everything revolves through how does it affect me? It's like complete, you know, narcissism. And, and so the idea that Russia interfered in the election to him was just saying that he was not a legitimate president, you know, plus any other possible, you know, host of things. Um, and I think that just became what people had to latch onto to have conservative or Republican or whatever this thing is now principle. So Yes, Russia didn't interfere in the 2016 election. In fact, I was on one of the very first Tucker Carlson shows. I think it was the only time I've ever done Tucker Carlson. And he had just kicked off the show. This is before we knew he was going to become utterly crazy and uh, utterly cravenly driven by dollars and not patriotism. And one of the first things he did was argue with me over Russia really didn't interfere in the election. How do we know it? How do we know it? And that's what it becomes. It just becomes an identity for people. So this is the difficulty, and I think we had a respite on the initial invasion of Ukraine by by Russia, you know, just seeing the brutality. But I fear that as the brutality just becomes an everyday occurrence to us, you go back to this somehow Putin sympathy or whatever. Well, there clearly is. That's the thing. Look, it's the 20-year war in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Americans become desensitized to it after a certain point. Yeah. That is a real, you're absolutely right. It's a real danger. You know, as a media type myself, you know, one of the things that always shocked me is, when, you know, I could tell you some Tucker stories because I started off in, in Fox News, interestingly enough. And, you know, one of the things that always surprised me, Congressman, is that when you actually meet these people in person, in many cases, their temperament, their personality is very different from how they appear on TV. And I just got to ask, you know, you're leaving Congress, but we have people like Green, like Gates. Are they, what what you see publicly, is that equivalent to what you see privately? Is that, like, when they talk these pro-Putin, you know, talking points, is that truly what they believe, or is it political calculus that they're acting on? Yeah, I think it's calculus. I think it's show. I think, so there's some true weirdos, like Mo Brooks, like Paul Gosar. You know, they're, like, true-believing weirdos. Um, another one would be, actually, Dana Rohrbacher. I mean, I love Dana, personally. I mean, he and I got along really well, and a couple times I went off on him on the committee for his pro-Putinism, and you know, and he somehow held off his anger at me. And, but, you know, like I get along with him, but it's just like, man, you are really endangering this country. But people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, they're performance artists. They come. So Matt Gates came over to me uh, right when he was elected. So nobody knew him. I didn't know him. And he just is like, hey, you get on Fox News sometimes. Like he was all like almost adoringly looking at me. And I go, yeah. And he's like, man, I hope I can get on there someday. And it's like, yeah, you certainly do. And you, <laughs> congratulations, you did. You just won't be able to look at your soul at the end of you know, your life. And that's, that's fine, you know, if that's what you want to do. And I remember another time, this was a 2016 convention. I see Laura Ingram, and uh, she had just recently attacked me on immigration or something because I'm, a, I guess, a rhino on immigration because I don't want to, you know, evict 20 million people. But uh, 
anyway, she comes up to me and just hugs me and she's like, Oh, Adam, it's just business. How you doing? And I mean, that just goes to show, Yeah, you know, it's, it's, they will destroy the country to make money. That's what it comes down to. I I think you're right. And it's, you know, I, I think people like you, especially having, well, you still serve. I feel that in many ways, you know, people who don't have that life experience, it's very easy to sort of walk into a place like Congress and not have any connectivity to, you know, what you're legislating, or even if you don't sit on a committee. And yeah. it feels that, you know, there is this disconnect. Do you worry, though, when getting back to Ukraine about that, do you worry that, you know, there is this, I mean, you've been very, very vocal about supporting Ukraine and and, and pushing back hard on the Russians. I sat down with uh, Martina Navratilova and she actually uh, defected from Czechoslovakia when she was 18 in the United States. And so for her, the idea of living behind an iron curtain, actually being ruled by an authoritarian is real. She she lived it. But, you know, we talk about authoritarianism here and, we you know, there's de- definitely a debate, but it doesn't feel as real, I think, to Americans because for the most part, we've been protected by two massive oceans. But when you think about Ukraine, you think about the moral th- thing to do, the right thing to keep Russia at bay is Congress not doing a good job in convincing the Americans, some of the American people of what, what needs to be done and why in Ukraine? Yeah. And I, I think it's Congress. I think it's a president. I think it's, it's, I mean, there's enough blame for everybody and it's, it's human maturations. And and I'm not going to be able to say this as eloquently as I heard somebody say it the other day, but basically, you know, look, it, it was after world war two where we got together as humanity and we basically set the ground rules for what is moral and immoral in war and to an extent after World War I as well. So you go through those kind of inhuman moments where everybody friggin' dies and now you're like, okay, we need to set up these institutions, have you know, a ban on these kinds of weapons, have, have these basic rules in warfare. And because people remember very closely what life without that is like. And I think on the other end, you know, I remember as a kid and I was one of the kids probably to an extent like you were that just paid attention to stuff when I was like six, which is weird, but I'm glad I did because I understood what the Soviet union was, you know, the, the, the Soviet union fell when I was basically 12 years old, but I had paid close attention to who the Soviets were prior to that. Um, And so you know, I remember what it was like to talk about what a nuclear exchange was. I knew what it was like to, you know, uh, go to a country. I, I went, you know, just a few years after the Iron Curtain had fallen and you see what poverty had done to them, um, you know, in East Germany, for goodness sakes. And uh, and so, you know, that generation then I think has has largely forgotten and the people who come after you know, democracy, self-governance, taking care of yourself is very difficult work. And the, the attractiveness to authoritarianism is it's truly easy. You right. know, you don't have to like democracy is hard. You got to get on the Internet. You got to pay attention to what people believe. You have to stay engaged. Authoritarianism presents to you somebody else doing all that difficult work. And it's like having somebody mow your lawn. Um, the problem is you come to realize like that person does not have your interest at heart. And it takes a very difficult process to come and understand that. I think we're in a moment where a lot of people feel with all this information from all these different sides and all these different news sources with all these different point of views, it's a lot of the times just easier not to accept an authoritarianism. That's not a mental decision to do that, but to just take the word of somebody that you trust, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, et cetera, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
and just believe that. And I think that's how authoritarianism comes in. So we are, we are dealing with, you know, we in essence have had all our needs met on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're sitting at self-actualization and we're in essence a victim of our own success. And that's where it comes quickly to Ukraine is we've gotten used to as, you know, a country that has an amazing military, by the way, we've invested billions and billions in our military so that if we have to go to war, not so that we never go to war, so that if we have to go to war, we can actually do it and kick the crap out of the people we're fighting and do it with the least casualties. Um, We have been able, for the most part in our lives, to have risk-free choices. We cannot intervene in Rwanda, and that is risk-free to us. Yeah, we're gonna, it's going to suck when we look back later and realize you know, millions of people died because we didn't act, but that's just a moral compunction. It's not real risk to us. It, Ukraine's different, and I think people are starting to maybe understand that, but I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I don't think the president quite yet understands that you know, this idea of what we're just, we just don't want to escalate. We just don't want to start World War III. Look, I hope Ukraine can do this without any more deep help, but I worry that's not the case. And, uh, you know, we can go into China and everything else, but the, the point is, I think our days of kind of risk-free choices are, are over. One of the things also sort of strikes me is that when we talk about our adversaries, right, whether, and let's focus on Russia and, and, and China and Iran, we'll put those all together in North Korea. You know, <laughs> they're all run by essentially despots, right? And, and despots don't, you know, they don't retire to Boca. <laughs> they're not going to announce right. it. <laughs> so they have the, the ability that we're dealing with very complicated problems in this world. And, you know, you talk about deterrence or um, whether it's military, whether it's economic, whether it's uh, environmental. The difference is, as a member of Congress, as a president, you know, you're limited to four years, right? <laughs> Eight if you're lucky. Yeah. And many of these problems, you know, kind of go past that. So you're right. Democracy is messy. And it's sort of like that quote from Hamilton, which is, are they going to keep replacing them? And if so, who comes next? That's a beautiful thing about democracy is that you do have, to some level, I think, you know, we have civic engagement and this idea of, you know, your civic responsibility and duty. I like to believe that people still feel that. But how does democracy compete? Um, on a on a larger strategic level with adversaries who don't have to worry about convincing the population <laughs> who can say they want to build a you know a blue water navy from a brown water navy say they want you know all sorts of things and they can do it because they can commit to a hundred year plan how do we counter that as and still remain a democracy it is a really good question and this is really the thing we have to wrestle with you know in in all the ukraine russia stuff look that is really important to us still nothing is comparative to the long-term competition with China, which is, I think, what you talk about alluding to with the 100-year plan and, and really, I guess, any country that can do that. And, I, you know, the thing is, is we're, of course, democracy it is, a, is at a strategic disadvantage, uh, and particularly in a new environment where people can use information kind of against democracies, right? We love claiming that we're a free and open country. We love being a free and open country, but in that free and open country, you have things like QAnon pop up. You have January 6th that comes about. Uh, you have people that turn fire uh, entirely into the inside, and they call both the media or the Democrats or Republicans the enemy uh, and not, you know, the actual enemy. I think it's a couple of things. So, you know, the disadvantage, of course, of authoritarianism is their corruption. And it's it's really hard. I don't know if it's ever existed to have a, you know, very altruistic, honest uh, authoritarian. We're seeing some of that in the Russian military today, where 
a significant amount of the money has been siphoned off for corruption, which is part of the reason they're underperforming. I'm sure there's a significant amount of that that goes on in China and elsewhere. That's one of our advantages. But on the decision making, uh, I think it's got to be, you know, in foreign policy terms, uh, five and 10 years isn't that long down the road. You know, if you think about 10 years ago was when uh, I think basically right about when we left Iraq, which doesn't seem like that long ago, uh, you know, the first time. So we had to go back for ISIS. But um, the uh, so I, I think we have to look at foreign policy, not just as as government members, but as people, as Americans. And this may go to civic education again. And quit, by the way, this is quick aside. This is what worries me so much about these battles in the education system is it is an education where we have to have a basic level of agreement to teach our kids stuff. Instead, we're sitting here in these culture wars, you know, on and off. And I'll tell you, from the left and right, the right is doing it right now at the school boards. The left is doing it in some of the, you know, some of these cultural issues that are just creating this problem. Let's teach Americans. Let's go back to kind of teaching basics. But the bottom line is if you can start doing that and you can put out that vision for the people, it makes a difference. But look, I think money in the political system is a huge problem because people have to be more and more outrageous to be more and more famous to raise more and more money. So that's something we have to deal with. And uh, and I think, again, it's going to be less about a new law or a new strategy. And it's much about the American people saying they are sick and tired of their leaders putting their own self-interest above that of the nation. And I got to tell you, I don't have a ton of faith that that's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah, it's, it's a sober, sobering point. Um, and, and, you know, again, when you think about as you cut your teeth sort of in the military and, the you know, the global war on terror, there was always the saying that you know, for the terrorists, they only have to be right once. We have to be right all the time and sort of set this. Right. And I think it's when we talk about, you know, us versus China or Russia, clearly when it comes to the president of the United States, when it comes to Congress, when it comes to this country, the bar of what we have to be in quote unquote right is pretty high. I, I think back about what Biden said about um, Putin and whether it was a gaffe, whether it was you know, there's other other idea that perhaps it was this planned way of saying something to Putin. But he said, uh, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. And, you know, obviously the State Department went back and sort of walked it back. What do you make of that quote? Do you think that that was, I mean, are things like that, whether it was a gaffe or not, um, is that the right kind of tone? Do you sort of see that it's important to be a hawk when it comes to Russia that for the president to say that, is that the right tone? Is that the right thing to say? Yeah, look, I guess I'm I'm kind of finding my stride here as an old 80s Republican again, you know, <laughs> and it's like it, when it comes to clarity on Russia, I first off, had I been president and had I said that line, whether it was intentional or unintentional, keep in mind, nobody expected Ronald Reagan to say the tear down this wall. And I think it was Josh Rogan that had tweeted basically you know, like alternative fiction of after Ronald Reagan said, tear down this wall, State Department released a statement saying he didn't mean the actual wall. He was talking about the wall in people's hearts and he didn't mean tear it down now. It meant after you negotiate. Anyway, it was kind of a, a funny way of saying it, but I would have fired everybody that clarified my statement for me. I would have done that that day if I was president, because right. I think even if Joe Biden had not intended to say that or for it to come across as it did, you know, the White House had a decision to make. They could have, they either could make him look weak, which is what they ultimately chose to do, or they could have said, okay, well, we wish he wouldn't have said it, but let's just go with it. And we can clarify that he doesn't mean that the United States is going to do regime change, but you know, look, if he's gone, he's gone. 
I think this is why this moral clarity in the United States is so important, is we have a crisis of confidence in this country where I think we've forgotten how important we are on the world stage. I think we've forgotten how much our words really do move mountains proverbially when it comes to international politics. And we've forgotten, you know, more kinetically how great our military really is. I mean, if the Ukrainians with some Western weapons are able to really put a hurt on Russia, and again, I'm not calling for direct interaction against Russia at this moment, but I think we need to understand that if we do get in a fight with Russia, it won't be a competition. I mean, it would be very quick and we would make quick work of Russia. And guess who knows that too? Vladimir Putin. And this is why that kind of strength and clarity, I think is very important. I say all that to say, you know, I think for the most part, Joe Biden's done a good job. I think he's done a good job of bringing our allies on board. Um, but I this, this utter constant fear of escalation, we need to have Vladimir Putin be the one scared of escalation. And even if we're afraid of it, we don't need to show that so often. Yeah. And, you know, my personal opinion on this, and I've been sort of vocal, is that I really do believe that it is very likely that the U.S. is involved much more in Ukraine than is publicly acknowledged. And, you know, again, We think about, I look at the example of going back to Afghanistan. The first forces in Afghanistan were not the DOD. It was you know, the CIA, the sort of so-called sheep dipping where you take U.S. special forces and you assign them to Title 50 uh, orders. And, and you can kind of say with a straight face, you know, we don't have any U.S. military members on the ground. Um, Ukraine, I think, is valiant in their in their battles. I also think that they're probably being helped quite a bit. But you talk about not being afraid of, of Putin. And you're right. Like, uh, I think that there is a lot of there's a lot there. But there's a lot of pushback. So, you know, for example, how do we do this? We talk, you know, I know you were, you're a proponent of, of the uh, no-fly zone. There's a lot of concern, I think, about how to balance this. That clearly, look, the reality is that uh, Ukraine has been asking to join NATO for eight years. And not just the U.S., but, you know, two presidents basically said no. So it's not just a Democrat or Republican thing. But how do we do this? How do we defeat Putin? which is what we're talking about here. We're, you know, the defeating him in Ukraine is, it has larger ramifications. How do we enable that without leading us to direct confrontation with Russia? And you're right. I think the Russians do know that they would, they would lose in confrontation. The danger with that is when you have two nuclear powers in confrontation, when one starts to lose, there's a very likelihood that they could resort to uh, you know, nuclear weapons. How do we do that? What's, how do we push back yeah. on Russia without actually escalating to, to nuclear war? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first thing, too, we have to remember is every non-nuclear but nuclear-aspiring country is watching how we deal with Russia. So if you're Iran, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're any country that wants nuclear weapons, and you see the utter fear to protect an ally by the United States because Russia has nuclear weapons, that is going to be the most... If you're North Korea, for God's sakes, you're going to be looking and saying, That is the most compelling argument for nukes that I've ever seen. So we need to just, I'm not saying, so that means now we need to bomb Russia. I'm just saying we need to keep that in mind that it's not just about this moment. It's about 10, 20, 30 years from now. What does this nuclear armed world look like if people see that nukes actually put the United States to allow basically you to run ramshot over anybody? Um, but, you know, secondarily, on how do you engage Russia without the escalation? I think, you know, some of what you mentioned earlier, I think there's some some kind of unofficial ways to 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 help the Ukrainians. I think I think we need to get past our fear of 
escalation in terms of what we're helping them with. Uh, like Ukraine should have anti-shipping missiles. Ukraine should have drones that aren't switchblade drones, by the way. Switchblades aren't bad, fine, great. If, you know, if the government wanted to send me 100 switchblades, that's awesome. I'll take them. Right. But that is 100 basically precision-guided hand grenades. <laughs> uh, they're not reusable. Uh, and they can maybe assassinate 100 generals if Russia puts them out there. But, you know, they're not going to destroy tanks because they're the 300. Um, so I think better UAVs. Uh, I also think that this whole idea of the MiGs where we kind of like guffaw the, the whole MiG, you know, issue. Uh, look, I've talked to Ukrainians. They're like, I, we have no idea why you guys keep acting like we're a bunch of rednecks asking for MiGs. Like we truly need them. We have the pilots. We have the ability. We just don't have the aircraft. And uh, as well as tanks. So I think, you know, that is an issue that we should be helping with. But then here's the whole kind of let's 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 think more into the intelligence realm on this. There are a lot of Russian interests around the world. If you look in Libya, if you look in Syria, you look in Venezuela and elsewhere, where I think we could inflict the kind of damage on some of their interests that they're doing, for instance, for our interests in Ukraine. Um, Why are we not arming the opposition or, you know, the folks that are fighting Russians in Syria, for instance, why aren't we helping them, uh, et cetera. As we know, Turkey has directly taken on the Russians so many times in the last few years. I think they're actually the best example for Russia won't escalate to nukes. Turkey shot down, you know, MiGs. Uh, Turkey has used their drones, not just against Russians in Ukraine. They used them in Azerbaijan. They've used them in Syria. Um, I think it's quite I think it's quite clear that we need to at least be engaging Russia in some of their proxy areas. They've been so far fairly unchallenged. And proxies is one thing, right? I think you're right. You know, uh, Congressman, if I can just one personal story. So when I left working for the FBI and you know, I wrote a book and sitting down with the FBI before the book came out and I said, you know, do you have any advice for me? And they gave me two pieces of advice. And one was, I was like, do, do I have to worry about my safety? And like, no, no, the Russians, you know, they don't want to do anything to you because if, if you know, if it does, it just elevates you. But, you know, and if they did anything, they'd probably just subcontract. Until a couple of years ago. Right. But yeah, cool. <laughs> right. And they'd subcontract to the Bulgarians. So, like, the joke was, whenever I do toss, I never have any Bulgarians. Um, but then the second thing was that they said, look, whatever you do, just don't humiliate them. Like, they're going to let you take your, your yeah. victory lap. And so there's this fine line. You're, you're right. So I think the Russians understand that there is, you know, covert action going on, right? They, they, they accept it because they do the same thing. The Wagner group, for God's sake. It, it's one thing to arm proxies. Another thing to say publicly, which I think, you know, is a pretty kind of a bold step that, hey, we're actually publicly going to acknowledge that we are supporting the Ukrainians in the fight against Russia. That's not a nothing, right? Like normally we never talk about this stuff. I have to give credit where credit is due here. There's a lot of things I would criticize the Biden administration about how they're handling this. But I do think that publicly like going out there and saying we have intelligence that they're going to do false flags, the Russians are going to do this. That's kind of a big deal. Do you think that's like a change in sort of approach to dealing with the Russians that perhaps part of that approach should be publicly kind of shaming them, publicly saying we're doing stuff as opposed to just kind of like hiding in the shadows? Yeah, look, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I actually think that they have done, uh, you know, and it's like, look, every one of us in national security or in Congress, you know, can point out what we would do different than the administration and and be critical. And, you know, and that's really our job, quite honestly. But um, there's a lot they have done right. And I think one of it, you know, I think the publicly acknowledging the help, of course, bringing our allies on board to help is extremely important if you're not going to directly engage. And, and I also think, by the way, and I've been supportive of a no-fly zone and still am, but I think the time 
you know, that's not a that's not a call in perpetuity because situations on the ground change. Um, but you know, I think they've done a good job in the public kind of calling for things. But I I also think the use of Intel was incredible in this case. You know, the danger of it is very serious, which is you know you could potentially reveal sources and methods, and you know maybe some of that happened. I'm sure they have taken great care to protect that, but. In November or late October, I actually got my first brief, which is, hey, this is this thing is going down. And it was Mike McCall and I, just two of us, and we were talking to a high-ranking guy within state. And I've never heard kind of from an intelligence perspective anybody be more certain. And so I was convinced in October, like, this thing is happening no matter what. And people wouldn't believe me, but, you know, now I can kind of nanny-nanny boo-boo them. But <laughs> I think their use of – Intel was really smart because particularly with the Russians, the Russians are always desperate to create a false narrative, as you well know. And when they were getting ready to do a false flag and say, this is Ukraine that started this, they did that in Georgia to an extent, you know, this is Ukraine. We had already put out there like, no, they're going to try to say this is Ukraine. It's like, you know, (laughs) Madison Cawthorn yesterday put out some video where, you know, after he said that everybody was having orgies and doing cocaine, he like, he has this video where he's slow motion, you know, w- moving around. And then, you know, it's like the left is coming after me in the establishment. And I'm like, that's like your standard playbook is slow motion, dramatic video. The establishment's coming after me. Right. And calling that out is important. So people look at the stupid things people are doing. You're right. It is It is sort of shocking. And, and again, it comes down to, I think we would all agree that there's the kinetic battlefield, but there's also the information battlefield. I, I've never seen it operate in such a manner as it is in Ukraine, right? Like there's literally facts and social media have an input in terms of policy, which impacts whether, you know, there's a no-fly zone, whether there's Ukrainians are getting weapons, whether there's support for, you know, Russia asking for the Donbass and like it actually, the information operation standpoint is like huge now. And fast forward, say two, three, four, five years, whatever, whenever that point comes, when hostilities in Ukraine stop, or they cease, should Putin and Russia just be allowed to return to the world stage? Is that where we should go with this? Yeah, it's a great question, too. Um, I think, look, you know, how does a war end? Every war ends in negotiation. And, you know, the question, the obviously outstanding question on Ukraine is, will, will it negotiate basically, hey, we'll let you, Russia, not lose Crimea if you stop this war, right? You know, which obviously would show the Ukrainians in the in the driver's seat, or is it, you know, hey, we'll give you the eastern part of Ukraine? And I think that's the open question. Um, but I think no matter what that looks like, um, Russia cannot be allowed until there's real, you know, and it's again, we want to take a little lesson from World War One, which is you know, after World War One, we kept trying to extract revenge from the Germans, which led to the rise of Hitler. You know, at the same time, not everything begat the new Hitler, you know. Uh, of course. I think it's important. I'm sure if the war is over and if it ends, you know, depending on how it ends, you know, maybe some version of sanction relief on certain areas. But I think Russia can never be allowed. Uh, to rejoin basically as a world leader. You have to show them a certain version of respect, uh, but they cannot be allowed to be considered the equivalent of the United States, the West, et cetera, because we do have the ability to 
modified behavior with some of that, you know, pulling them out of the world order. And I think that has to stay the case. We never should have given a most favored nation status. I don't think they should ever give it, get it back. Those kinds of things, but it's going to be, that's a tough, that is a tough question because, you know, to one hand, you want to incentivize the end of hostilities. On the other hand, you don't want to reward hostilities. You know, as you've been talking about, it's always going to come down to money. And there's just so much money to be made with Russia that, yeah, I, you know, I, know. I just I unfortunately wonder if, you know, if, if things won't won't go back. Um, I agree with you, though, that obviously it's you've you got to set a precedent. Uh, but I, I want to in the, in the last few minutes we have, I want to talk about you because, I mean, I could go on with you for, for another half hour. It's fascinating conversation. You're an interesting character in your own right in that, you know, you've taken a stance that's, you know, in many cases counter to some in your party and you're leaving. So the first question I want to ask about that is what is next for you? Where What are you going to go do? I mean, you're speaking so candidly. There's there is definitely a need for people like you yeah. who are you know focused on this idea. It was returned to sort of this national security should drive what our policy is, not politics, not partisan politics. What's next for you? Yeah. Well, by the way, thank you for calling me interesting. I don't think anybody's more interesting than you, though. Man. Oh, stop. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, no, look, I mean, you know, for me, in terms of the question of whether or not to run again, when I had to face that and I, every two years, you know, the House were always running again. And so every two years, I'd basically sit around and think, like, do I want to do this? Is this the right thing? Am I being true to the people I represent? You know, is my heart fully in it? And I think regardless of what would have happened, I mean, it's been 12 years after this term. I think it was time for me to move on from the House. That doesn't mean it's time to move on from politics. It just means I'm kind of over all the kind of the same stuff that happens in the House of Representatives. So, you know, and not to mention, it certainly is fatiguing and energy sucking to be, you know, constantly kind of an island in your own party and to watch the insanity, right? Like to watch people accept almost white nationalism, to watch people, you know, be Vladimir Putin sympathetic and to be like, that's the party that I'm part of. Like, that's embarrassing. Um, but I intend, so I, you know, I started this movement called Country First and I, I did it after the insurrection kind of unintentionally, but we have over 100,000 members now, 50 state chapters, and I'm excited to be able to focus more time on that. It's, it's going after defeating toxic tribalism. It's going after coming up with like new solutions and new ideas to, to real problems. And, uh, and that'll give me more time to focus on that. And in terms of is there any you know, future for me in politics, maybe, maybe not. I'm going to take it day by day. Uh, but, you know, I certainly am not ruling out anything in the future. I, I just... You know, I've always been fairly straight shooting, but, you know, you know, you always as a politician put some things through the lens of what does it mean for what's the political impact. And now I don't have to do that. And it's very, very liberating. So whatever I do is just going to be kind of that truth telling part of it because it's just we need more of this. So I, I agree. And, and then I have a new kid, so I'm just going to hang out with him a lot. <laughs> oh, man, the. You know, the joys of children, I can, uh, That's right. <laughs> we often talk about, you know, uh, on the side, like I, I used to be, you know, a spy guy. Now I drive a minivan and it's just the first full <laughs> Dude, circle. <laughs> I'm like, 
I used to throw on a combat helmet and a flak vest. And now you're changing now diapers. I'm saying the word poopy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Wait, wait till they get a little older and tell you what, what a terrible father you are. That's always that's always the the choice. <laughs> I, I, I will give one quick aside to you and, and our listeners. So way, 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 way back when I was with uh, Eric Swall while we were walking into the green room and in LA to an MSNBC, and I think his wife was pregnant with their first child, and he was asking, "What's it like to have kids?" And I'm like, "You know, they're kind of they can be jerks, but." It's okay. You got to like roll with it. Like it's okay. And everyone was like, oh my God, he called his kids. But it's, a, there's a, there's, a, there's a truth about children and like being a parent that teaches you like patience. And it, it is a very, <laughs> it is a very useful skill. I imagine it's a very useful skill for politics. So I got to ask the last question here with this. Okay. So a lot to unpack here. You, you know, when you talk about country first, uh, I imagine it's, it's, is it nonpartisan? I mean, I'm guessing you're focusing on on elections, both local and state and federal and just across the spectrum. Yeah. OK, Does that- yeah, it's it's across the spectrum. And we're going after at the moment uh, within the Republican Party, kind of toxic Republicans with with good ones trying to get people to turn out and vote or something called primary first turn out and vote. You know, if you're not a Republican, but you're going to be represented by a Republican, those kinds of things. So does that mean are you switching parties? Are you staying a Republican? Do you, what do you see as the the future of the Republican Party? I think the future of the Republican Party is, you know, up in the air. It's a decision. I think it's some decision we're going to make. Look, I think if the Republican Party stays kind of this garbage it is today, I think it'll die out with the next generation. And, you know, without correcting course, there will be a moment at which I say, okay, I'm no longer a Republican. I'm not a Democrat, by the way, because the Democrats are going even further <laughs> left, and I'm just not that. Um, but I. I certainly would not feel like a Republican if it stays like this, but I, I think it deserves a good fight. I think, you know, I'm still going to fight for the soul of that party. You know, at this point, the country only has two parties and it's only had two parties for 150 years. Right. Um, it's worth, you know, fighting for the soul of it. But if it gets to a point where, and I don't know what that day is going to be where it becomes obvious that this is not a truth telling party, then certainly I, I couldn't stay in. But my hope is to be able to, is to hope that turns around. Well, I mean, you're, you're, we're not going to see you sort of pull an Andrew Yang and sort of start a, start a new party anytime soon, I imagine. You're, you're, sounds like no, you're staying. No, no. Okay. Not at the moment because it's just like, you know, the it would be kind of fun to do, but I mean, the structure is just so difficult in this country to do anything but the two-party system. <laughs> you know, it's true. A lot of people don't realize we weren't always this way. And you've, you've right. kind of touched on the history. It is... You know, this country, democracy is, uh, and the republic is, uh, it, it is, despite what a lot of people say and feel that it should never change, history would indicate it, it has anything but, right? It's changed considerably. And, you know, I mean, it's not always yeah, a bad thing. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a new book, and uh, it's about, it's breaking the two-party doom loop, just more about the curiosity of this. But anyway, at the founding, it was funny, you know, all the founding fathers were opposed to party systems, yet they formed parties. <laughs> and, uh so right. you kind of look at that and go, okay, well, it is what it is. We got to deal with it. But yeah, I mean, they used to have a new party every, you know, twenty days or so. It seemed like. Well, you know, I think we're gonna have to leave it there. It's a fascinating conversation. I'd love to have you back on, it. and we'll be watching what comes uh, next for you. And and I will leave you with one of the greatest Russian jokes that I, th- you know, Reagan actually. <laughs> when we talk about Reagan, Reagan had a whole thing. I'd urge people to look at this. Maybe more if we can if we can share it somehow when we post this. But like Reagan actually had a whole thing about Soviet jokes. One of the greatest Russian jokes, I, I there's two, but the first one is, how does every Russian joke begin? It's by looking over your shoulder. 
And then the second, <laughs> this, <laughs> the second one is, um, I, you know, I asked a Russian general how things were going and he responded and said, I cannot say. And th- that's the point is that we are living in a country where I think, you know, listening to you, it's okay to have opposing views and it's okay. Yeah. It's an, an important. It's an important thing to understand that oh, yeah. we, we should have these debates. You know, it's important to have them, but it's, it, it feels like you got to at least start from an agreement on facts. And if you can't agree on facts, just facts, you know, I, I don't know how you have that debate. And hopefully people like you can help steer that back into that, that course where there can be debates on things, but we at least agree on a set of facts. And that would be a starting Amen. point. I think that's the key. Basic facts and then disagree after that. That's that's it. And I, I don't know why we've lost our way, but it feels like we have. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Congressman, thanks so much. Fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Have a great day. Thanks. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for more foreign policy coverage. And as always, let's continue the conversation on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and yes, even TikTok. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really does help us both grow and bring you this original content. As always, until next time, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek.